This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Ivan, fantastic to see you on Real Vision. Great to be here, Al. Listen, we've got a lot to talk about, but as ever, I want to get into your journey of how the hell you got here. What's your crypto journey? And even before that, how did you get to where you are? Yeah. So if we go all the way back, I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, which is where the Revolutionary War started against the Brits, uh, (laughs) which is funny to mention because I'm in my London moon base right now. Talking Uh, to a Brit. Talking to a Brit. I guess maybe that had some revolutionary spirit uh, growing up in Concord. Was a big tennis player growing up. I loved tennis. Fortunately, I was sidelined by a, a tennis elbow injury, so I couldn't realize my dreams in college. So when I got to college, somehow it makes sense, but I, I swapped to rowing. When I talk about rowing, what are those lessons that I can you know, apply to the work that I do inside of MoonPay? When we think about MoonPay, we're trying to onboard this world to the new next generation of the internet, Web3. And when we think about that journey, it's an optimization function. You know, you can go back and think about what are all your distribution points to bring people into this new crypto economy. And for us, we started with Visa and MasterCard, billions of people already on those networks. And then how do we make that experience as efficient as possible? How do we make every single step in that journey as efficient as possible? So if you're into Kaizen and you're into optimization functions, uh, it's a really exciting challenge because every single day we're trying to think through how do we bring as many people into this ecosystem as possible? So you leave rowing, you leave college. How did you get into crypto? Yeah, so, so what happened was when I was in college, one of my friends wrote his thesis on Bitcoin. What year was this? This is 2012. So that was my graduation year. Uh, I remember sitting down in class and thinking, you know, this is super cool. This new internet money called Bitcoin and uh, didn't really do much with it. You know, I remember just kind of, you know, glancing on the internet, obviously learning about the thesis, reading the thesis. But that's when I started to discover what services were available if you wanted to buy Bitcoin. And at the time, you know, Coinbase was just coming to market around then. It was actually the time of local Bitcoins, if anyone can remember that which was a peer-to-peer marketplace where you could buy different crypto assets and mainly Bitcoin. But it was actually a little bit sketchy. You had to, you know, you see that you'd have to sometimes meet people in person. Uh, You have to meet someone at a coffee shop, which I think a lot of people were terrified of. I ultimately didn't meet someone in person, but I did manage to buy, I think my first Bitcoin ever was through local Bitcoins. So I guess that makes me a a crypto OG. I think I first got into 2013 and ItBit was the exchange that I used. There was very few exchanges still then, but a friend of mine had started ItBit, Emil and, and um, Chad. So you buy Bitcoin. How do you then decide to set up MoonPay? What's the dot, dot, dot from, yeah, this is a cool idea. I've bought some of this stuff in a coffee shop to setting up a business in it. Yeah. So I started my career in portfolio construction. 
It was more on the macro side. So I got a good lens of how all these different asset classes fit together. Who are you working for? I worked for a company called Reddington in London. So I'd spent a year at Oxford. I did a year abroad and that's where, you know, it was the best place you could possibly row. So I was really excited about being able to be part of that, the competition. Yeah, Henley's just finished, isn't it, this week? Henley's finished, but just I think what's so cool is you have 39 colleges of Oxford that all compete against each other. There's something called Blades, which is like the ultimate aspiration if you're a rower at Oxford, if you're rowing for a college, is they have twice a year, they have something, uh, they've got torpids and they've got something called summer eights. And the whole purpose is for you to bump the boat ahead of you. And you essentially have this lineup that's happened for centuries where people are you know, basically stacking up against each other and have to bump the boat ahead of them. And if you bump the boat for three days, I think it might be four days consecutively, you get a blade. And so our college hadn't had a blade in over two decades. And uh, we managed to make it happen during summer eight. So that was like, for us, I mean, that was like the pinnacle. Uh, <laughs> setting, you know, it was one of the coolest you know, things that I think back on my, my time at Oxford. And so then you, so you then go into asset management. The sponsor of my boat club happened to be a company called Reddington. And that company ended up meeting the CEO and was really inspired by him. He was an entrepreneur. He'd come from Merrill Lynch. He was on the interest rates derivative side of things on the fixed income solutions group. And he saw an opportunity to hedge out some of the biggest risks that pension funds were facing. So really interest rate risk and inflation risk by leveraging you know, a strategy called LDI or liability driven investment, which is the way a lot of pension funds de facto operate today. So it was an incredible place to learn because I got to see the biggest whales, of the financial ecosystem and how these different asset classes kind of fit together. And so that's where I started from there. You know, that's kind of how I had my lens of how I looked at Bitcoin. I saw it as this is an alternative asset class. And then you can compare it and stack rank it against other asset classes like gold, right? Gold being a $10 trillion asset class. And you could say, well, this is a really interesting one because one, it's open to anyone with an internet connection. It's starting with retail investors before institutional investors. That's really interesting. If you look at the history of asset classes, really the last new asset class that had come was hedge funds. And hedge funds were really only something that if you were an institutional investor could have access to. And so there's a brand new asset class starting with retail, which is something unique. And so for me, I was just fascinated by that. I remember, you know, a lot of people, when I told them about you know, investing in Bitcoin, they thought it was stupid. Uh, they're like, what, what is this? You know, what, what are you wasting your money on? This is an asset that doesn't produce any value. I stuck with it and, and kind of spent a lot of time in my free time kind of just playing around. And then 2015 came, I was starting to feel that I was going to hit my limit as a advisor to big pension funds and insurance companies. I knew that, you know, that wasn't my calling in life. It was, it was a great place to learn. Pretty boring. Uh, it's pretty boring. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty boring. You know, I, I, for me personally, I, I, I was more stimulated. It was funny. I was on the risk management side, but I'm someone that likes taking risks. And so in my free time, I would go to these hackathons. Um, and these hackathons happen across different places in London. At the time, the Silicon Roundabout was like essentially the equivalent of Silicon Valley in London. And I remember going to this hackathon it was sponsored by Google at Google campus in London. And there was a company called, there's a accelerator called Seed Camp. So kind of similar to Y Combinator, but for Europe and managed to walk away with a prize from this hackathon. And the organizers basically said from Seed Camp, hey, you should apply to Seed Camp, consider starting a business. And so that's what kind of gave me the confidence to start my first business, which was called Savable in 2015. And the idea behind Savable was, let me connect to your bank account. There was this new technology, open banking technology that was coming to market. And essentially the idea was, let me connect to your bank account. 
Let me learn from your transaction history and let me try to help you optimize your savings and investment decisions. So very similar. Uh, you're probably familiar with these kind of businesses in the United States like Digit or Acorns. But I was trying to do something similar for the Europe and UK market with what I thought to be more sophisticated tools around connecting to bank accounts. Yeah, because UK was pretty advanced in fintech at that point. You know, they made a move quite early connecting all of this and stuff like Revolut came out of that. Exactly. Revolut actually was at Seedcamp one year before I started. So they were the cohort before me. And I remember, wow, I picked the wrong business <laughs> uh, because, you know, those businesses, the businesses that were really succeeding in London at the time were FX oriented business. So you saw TransferWise, you saw Revolut, and that was their hook. Revolut's hook initially was you have this card, you can use it when you travel abroad, you can save a lot of costs on FX. I was there building this business where, you know, I think you have stars in your eyes and as, as an entrepreneur on your first business that you're going to hit a home run. Uh, you're going to build this thing that everyone's going to use. But the reality was it was really difficult to scale. It was the school of hard knocks for me with my first business around how do we acquire customers I think that's where I realized that distribution as an entrepreneur, thinking through your distribution lever points are incredibly important. And so I went through the whole process of I built this really cool piece of tech, but I had to onboard all these people into it. And then convincing people for the first time to use a new service to connect their bank account, that's a big ask, right? I ended up deciding that this business was going to be very difficult to scale. I managed to sell it to a company called Plum, which is the leader in automated savings in Europe and UK. They've kind of run with the vision and mission in a much better way than, than I did uh, as a first-time entrepreneur. And so 2017, I was really back at the drawing board. At that point, I could not ignore what was going on with crypto. 2017, I think, was a really big wave of next-generation adoption for crypto, really around just the user experience, right? I remember if you go pre-2017, in some cases, if you wanted to access a wallet, you had to use the terminal on your computer, right? There was no GUI. There was no graphical user interface if you wanted to interact with the wallet. 2017 was really the rise of Binance. I remember coming to market around that period of time. And I remember just doing my research. I was just kind of looking at, okay, if I want to buy cryptocurrency, if I want to access and I want to, you know, you, you start with the wallet and you say, okay, well, how do I, how do I get a wallet first off? And then how do I top up my wallet? That was the really interesting point for me because what I realized was when you download any of these apps to get this wallet, if you actually wanted to put cryptocurrency in it, it was this whole convoluted process. You had to go to an exchange, you had to buy cryptocurrency and then move it into your wallet, which to me really just didn't make a lot of sense. And so actually in the beginning, this engineer, really talented engineer, who ended up becoming my co-founder, Victor Fairmont and I started focusing on building a wallet. And we said, how do we make this wallet easier for you to top up? Like, what if we build the functionality for you to top up directly inside the wallet? But we were actually going about it the wrong way in the way that I was looking at my first startup, which was we were going to go direct to consumer. We're going to launch an app. We're going to hopefully acquire all these customers and they would see the wondrous technology uh, that we had built. And we had learned, I guess I had learned from the first time around this was, you know, that's very difficult to scale. And so it was by chance, but someone decided to check out our wallet. Someone decided to share it with Bitcoin.com. And I get an email from Bitcoin.com saying, hey, this wallet that you built, Ivan, is pretty cool. Maybe there's a way we can work together. That ends up with me taking a plane out to Tokyo and meeting the Bitcoin.com team. I'd never been to Tokyo in my entire life. So it was a really cool opportunity. I remember bringing Victor and we showed him this really cool wallet. And we said, hey, what if we built you functionality for your wallet where you could top up directly? We think we can do this in a way that's seamless, that's faster, that's going to give you more conversion. And at the time, there were other solutions that were offering debit and credit cards into crypto, but they were pretty clunky. Like I just felt like the user experience really wasn't quite there. And that essentially was the birth of MoonPay. The birth of MoonPay was solving a problem specifically for Bitcoin.com. 
We knew that they had customers. We knew that there was, you know, crazy distribution in the sense that they had the domain name, Bitcoin.com. All these customers were landing on the website. Now, a lot of them downloaded the app and just wanted to top up their wallet with Bitcoin. So how could we do that? And I think what was interesting and by chance was we really focused on something that I think has become increasingly more important, which is this movement around non-custodial, right? So one of the really key pieces is I think that the future is you should be in control of your control and own really your identity, your data, your property, and your digital currency. And the movement of non-custodial is your control, right? You actually own the possession of your private key and you're in, in control of that digital wallet. When we built MoonPay, we built it to be non-custodial. We built it in a way where we can top up any wallet address that interacts with our MoonPay widget. And so period of 2017 to 2018, you know, it was really just testing it out with Bitcoin.com. We were starting to see traction. And I remember trying to raise our first seed round. I remember saying, you know, this thing is growing. We probably need to raise some capital to expand the business. We got rejected from pretty much every major VC. Went around Silicon Valley, you know, we had a client that was paying, it was working, but they said, oh, you know, there's Coinbase, there are other businesses that are going to do this. Sorry. But that actually emboldened us. I think some of the most powerful things that have happened in my life is when people say no, you work really hard to prove them wrong. And so from our perspective, we knew we had something and we knew that we were going to get traction. And I remember it was actually a pretty similar period as it is today, where 2018, you know, we had essentially the hangover of what happened over 2017. And a lot of people had written off crypto and Bitcoin and everything for that matter. So that, I mean, I think it was rational that a lot of investors just didn't want to participate in the category whatsoever. We just really doubled down during that period. And we knew that everyone was going to need this infrastructure. Every single wallet would need the infrastructure to top up. It did not make sense that they would have to go to an exchange and move their cryptocurrency to the wallet. It should be directly inside the application, right? The customer was already there. They have the intention. We need to make that intention easier. And so it goes back to what I was saying previously, which is everything in our business is an optimization function. How do we bring as many people into this ecosystem as possible? And then from there, I would say what's been really interesting about MoonPay is we've transcended really just the payments infrastructure use case. So we started with building payments infrastructure. You know, we need to localize this experience for every part of the world. And were you white labeling that for other people as well as for yourselves or? Yes, we've always been a B2B2C business, right? So we find all the distribution points where people want to top up their wallet and we make that journey simpler, right? So we're inside of a lot of the major wallets today, leverage MoonPay's infrastructure. So you can use your debit and credit card. You can use your bank account. You can use Apple Pay. You can use all the popular payment methods that you're already familiar with and seamlessly purchase or sell cryptocurrencies. That was the start. But I guess I would have never predicted you know, what would take place later, which was this emergence of NFTs. I think NFTs really changed the game in terms of the way that I thought about our business at MoonPay because the content changes considerably, right? It's not just the digital currency use case. It goes to the digital property use case. And I start to question, did we get the sequencing wrong? Did we get the sequencing wrong in the sense that we believe that everyone needs to adopt digital currency before they need to adopt digital property? And that's what, you know, was challenged. And so, at that period of time, I said, okay, well, NFTs are probably going to be a big thing. And so we should really think about how do we, in the same way that we provided the infrastructure in a non-custodial way for buying cryptocurrencies, how do we do that for this movement of NFTs? Because what was interesting was early NFT platforms, a lot of them were closed, right? You couldn't take your NFTs off platform. And I knew it was going to be important that you should own your digital identity, you should own your digital property. The whole point of them, the interoperability is the point. Exactly, Right. And so that insight enabled us to launch a new product called NFT Checkout, 
which we're really excited about because what it does is abstracts the complexity of cryptocurrency. These NFTs are built on smart contracts. And so what ends up happening is you purchase just like a normal e-commerce experience. And we take our cryptocurrency from our balance sheet, supply it to the smart contract, take possession of the NFT, and then put it in your wallet. And we think that's a game changer, right? In the sense that the customer doesn't have to go purchase cryptocurrency. So you're not having to go and buy your ETH to go and buy your whatever it is. Because we saw a lot of the activity around people buying ETH was just to buy an NFT. So what if we just removed that step, right? Again, how do we solve that kind of conversion bottleneck? Much like a foreign exchange transaction. Exactly. Well, it is a foreign exchange transaction. That is all it is, in fact. I guess the interesting thing about NFTs is they're classified differently. So when we talk about digital currency, they're actually fungible. And so obviously certain banks, certain credit cards you end up having problems when you try to use them to purchase cryptocurrency because banks block those transactions. They call them quasi-cash, right? And some banks don't like that, right? Uh, if you're going to be using credit to buy a stable coin and then yield farm and get a you know crazy yield, right? Does that make sense for a credit card to take on that risk on behalf of the consumer? There's an arguable point around that, right? However, it was creating a lot of friction for first-time users of MoonPay. Whereas with NFTs, what's really interesting is they're digital property. They're non-fungible by nature. And so the conversion uplift is considerable because they're classified differently by the card schemes. So mm -hmm. they're classified as digital goods. And so we've already seen nearly double the amount of conversion from our NFT checkout product, which is really exciting. So when it goes back to how do we onboard people into this world of Web3, my prediction now is a lot more people will onboard through digital collectibles and NFTs, potentially more than just the cryptocurrency or digital currency use case. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Talk me through your vision of where this is going to go. I mean, you're already signing up deals with a lot of brands. Where is this going from your perspective? What are the kind of conversations they're having? Because I think this is where the next two or 300 million people come from. It's not from more people investing in ETH. This is the big, this and POAPs or, you know, some sort of NFT ticketing is, I think, the big thing. 100%. I think that's where we looked at MoonPay as a business, right, we started really solving these kind of crypto native use cases, right, around payments. Whereas, you know, how do we bring more people into the space? It's now cross collaboration across many different industries, the fashion industry, the music industry, the art industry, the sports industry. Because they're overlapping cultural communities as well, which is really interesting. Exactly. And I think you mentioned one really tangible one for people to understand, which is ticketing. Ticketing to me just makes a lot of logical sense that the file format that should power ticketing is NFTs. It goes back to the, the term that you use, POAP, right? Proof of attendance, right? If a proof of attendance protocol, how, how can we actually prove that someone has actually attended an event that can now be registered in this form of this NFT? That I can know that I went to a Justin Bieber concert with issuing that NFT. I can collect that information that that person actually attended but also I can start to engage with that person beyond just them attending the concert or even before the concert. Before the concert, I can start to engage with that you know, person. I could say, hey, maybe you want to have a meet and greet experience with Justin Bieber or, hey, I want to be backstage. You can start to segment out your audience. That's really, when I speak to brands, that's really the key point. It's around segmentation. 
there was no way for them to be able to segment out their kind of power, their most loyal users in any you know, way. NFTs really enable that. Yeah, because right now, if you do that, you have to pay Facebook or Google to do it. And you have to use that algorithm to say who are the people who come to our, you know, whatever, engage in our site more often. But this gives you a direct relationship with the customer. We're cutting out the middlemen, as we always do, right? Facebook, Google, you can all see them as middlemen that we're controlling your relationship with your end user or your end you know, person or audience or fan or whatever you want to call it. Now you can form that relationship directly, which is really powerful. But the next issue that I've been trying to think through is how the hell do we stop all this spam then? Because you know this is becoming an increasing problem. And if you've got a relatively public profile, your wallets just get spammed to death. And it's like, it's a nightmare. It actually came up recently in another conversation I had with Frank Shapiro. And when I discussed this with them, I said, I think it will look very similar to what's happened with Gmail. Eventually, we build really powerful spam filters into our wallet. And our wallet gets smarter. And it gets much more highly relevant because it's being able to read all of this NFT content, right? You were going to be able to say, this content is not relevant, or it'll be able to determine whether this NFT content is relevant. They'll be able to detect based on the wallet addresses of the brands. Is this a brand that I've engaged with previously or not? And that will not surface at the top. So I think that's where we are. We're in the very early phases where it makes sense. It's going to be full of junk. It's going to be full of all these different things. I mean, I don't even want to check my wallet. Like it, it, it scares me. Uh, my wallet address is public. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm scared <laughs> in some cases, especially not to touch anything. And that's, that's also a warning to people that have wallets, like be very careful. There are a lot of issues where you trade out of some of these NFTs or trade out of these cryptocurrencies. You can be drained of all of your funds. Do not give your private key to anyone. You know, the basics, I think those are the normal PSAs we need to give everyone. I think we're going to see considerable sophistication around the filtering over time, the same way that we've seen it with email. And also, it's fascinating because once you build out a social graph where you have a direct connection with your end customer, you can then do all sorts of things. So let's say you're a movie franchise. You can now finance new films. You can create events. You can, as you said, reward ongoing consumer behavior just in ways were just not possible. And most people haven't yet got their heads around this. Even the big brands, they kind of get it that, oh, yeah, NFTs have a value and they're kind of cool right now. They don't understand that transformation between wallet, NFT, and customer is going to be the future of the internet. Much like you know, Google holds all the power now, it's going to change entirely and it's all going to be on chain. 100%. I think this is probably some of the most transformative technology that we're going to see in our lifetime. The shift that we're about to see now. And that shift can be summarized as power and control, hopefully back to the user and hopefully back to the person, right? That I own my data my identity, my property, my digital currency. I can interact with the smart contracts that I want to interact with. And I can navigate across this ecosystem frictionlessly. The challenge now is the infrastructure really needs to improve. And that even comes down to the blockchain level, right? These things really need to scale. We're going to really start testing these things to limits as big brands start to enter the space. And so that's what I really think about is, you know, how do we get to the right user experience? You know, I think a lot of the crypto companies today have been focused on really thinking traditional finance and then creating the analog for this new crypto economy. But I guess I'm going from first principles of, I think the wallet is now your new bank account. Okay, so what is this entire new ecosystem going to look like? What are all these different interactions that you're going to have? And how do you deal with the different chains? Because you know we've seen obviously the rise of NFTs on Solana, so now we've got two ecosystems we have to navigate. You know, MetaMask doesn't use it. I mean, it's just a, it's still a shit show, right? 
100%. But I think that's normal. With any new disruptive technology, you have many different competing formats. We can remember what happened with, you know, we went from CD to Blu-ray to MP3 format. You know, it's we're going to go through that, right? Same process with blockchains. I do think there will be consolidation. I do think that we will see a polychain world of there'll be multiple blockchains that will serve different use cases. And it's good. It's a good, healthy level of competition that's taking place as a result of that. It's forcing each of the ecosystems to get better. So I think it's natural. Are we going to have hundreds of blockchains? I hope not. <laughs> Do I think we, we will have a, a couple of different players that may specialize or have special properties around their specific blockchains? Yes. And so that's what's being borne out at the moment. And so from, from our perspective, it's if there is going to be a multi-blockchain world, how do we disguise or mask that complexity? That's right. Nobody cares. I don't, I don't care what computer you're on. I don't care what computer, what modem, what software. I, I don't care. That, we need to get to that as opposed to, yeah, I'm using Ethereum and you're using It's like crazy. That's quite complex to do still. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I mean, it keeps us busy. You know, as a, as a company, it's really exciting. I come in every single day. There are new problems for us to solve. There are new things for us to tackle. We're just constantly just focused on, again, like we, it's an 80-20 rule. It's like, what are the things that are going to drive the most impact? What are the things that we should focus on in a company that are going to onboard more people into Web3? And that kind of forms our decision-making across what are the things that we should prioritize as a business? Because, I mean, there's an infinite amount of tooling, I think, that you could, in theory, build as you try to bring people into this ecosystem. The other obvious part of this whole ecosystem that's coming is metaverse and how this all fits in. And then the interoperability between all of this stuff. How are you planning for, because that's the next phase, whether that's, you know, the 2025 wave, but we know it's coming, right? It's, it's writ large everywhere. The thing I tell everyone about the metaverse is we're already living in it, right? We're already in the metaverse. And the metaverse to me is defined as your digital identity. It's how people perceive you digitally, right? In a lot of cases, we know people in real life, but you know, in a lot of cases, you've maybe never met someone and you formed their impression based on you know, Googling them, checking out their different social profiles and the rest. And so arguably we're already in the metaverse. Now we're really improving the application layer for us to experience the metaverse. Like that's kind of where, you know, I think new technologies like Oculus are super fascinating, right? There are new ways that we can start to experience this new medium of our digital identity. And within that digital identity, you're going to have digital property in the same way that we have property in the real world. So we're, we're moving, you know, I think the, the best movie, which maybe is a cliche at this point, is Ready, Ready Player One, right? What you see inside of Ready Player One, to a large extent, it's a play to earn metaverse to people that have not watched that movie yet, but it's essentially a play to earn metaverse, right? Where people are living and forming their own relationships, their own set of characteristics, ways that they express themselves. And essentially that's where we are going to. And it's going to take time. It's going to evolve. We're in a primitive format today, which is let me just change my profile picture to something that is digital to represent myself. It would make sense that we might start the sequence there, but it's going to become more and more advanced over time. So that splits me into two parts. One is digital identity itself. We are desperate for proper digital identity online that has, whether it's zero knowledge proofs embedded or some way to get rid of the frictions that we all have how are you thinking about that? Because that's a, that's a huge thing that needs to get solved. So digital identity, I think part of it is your social graph, right? And, and what's interesting is, like, as I said, if I'm forming my impression of you online, I'm taking all these different data points from how you exist across all these different platforms to form my impression of who you are digitally. So it might not just be, you know, your Facebook is not just your digital identity. It could be a, a makeup of many different things, right, that are going to form your digital identity. And I'm also talking about digital identity in the official sense of 
embedded within this is your driver's license, KYC, AML, all of this stuff. Going back to the social graph point, I think NFTs are going to play a really important role because things like soulbound tokens, right? Your records, your data, your university degree, all of these things will eventually form part of your social graph. And that's why your wallet will help form what is your digital identity. But I think in terms right. of the traditional sense, right, how governments view us, right, in terms of what constitutes our identity, you know, it's typically our government issued IDs, our passports, our credentials. And yeah, it's shocking that it's taken a quite a while to see a lot of innovation there, right? You know, the fact that I still have to show a physical passport every time that I'm traveling, right? The fact that that has not been made digital yet. You know, I, I think we're, we're taking baby steps towards that direction. I think one of the really interesting areas that um, we've thought about, and mainly it's been because of, well, a couple of things. Well, it's really been because we want to provide a more seamless experience to our customers. And obviously we want to comply with the local laws and regulation, right? And by seamless experience, it's because we're trying to comply with the local laws and regulation, which is we capture KYC as part of the process of onboarding with MoonPay. And the idea behind that is once we do it once, right, that's tied to our customer's email address. They no longer have to do it across many different platforms. It doesn't make sense as a user that you're going to want to re-upload your passport and your identity docs every time you want to interact with something in Web3. That makes zero sense to me. If we need to do it to comply with the local laws and regulation, then we should do it once and we should make it as simple as possible. And I'm definitely open to ways in which it can be shared safely with other platforms over time. Have you seen Aadhaar yet in India? No, not familiar. It's, the whole crypto community has missed this. It's the largest onboarding of any biometric database in all history. There's 1.1 billion people. And they, they said, right, with no ID cards anymore. It's an Aadhaar card. They said, what you're going to do is it's a retina scan and a fingerprint. And that within it, in something called India Stack, is your government KYC, including you can have your university certificates and they're bringing on all your medical records, all of it. And you can permission it with your fingerprint. It also attaches to your wallet because they've got this payment system called UPI. So you can go and buy a pint of milk with your fingerprint. You don't need a mobile phone. You don't need anything. And it automatically transacts it with your bank. But also I can go to, let's say, get a rental car with my fingerprint, just gives all of my KYC documentation. They approve it instantaneously and it gets rid of all of the friction. So it's actually been solved at massive scale. It wasn't done on blockchain which would be the big criticism is a centralized database. But you should definitely check it out because it's super interesting what they did. It's basically a storage system that is accessible only with biometric data. That's super interesting in terms of leveraging these other biometric points, right? We use face ID, face scan, but there's obviously retina scan, finger, uh, all these things can be used. And obviously we should be studying what are the most successful models that have been rolled out and hopefully get to some sort of standard internationally. That's the biggest challenge. Yeah, easier said than done. As a financial services business, we also have to comply with the local laws and regulation around taxation, around you know how they perceive like what is considered acceptable KYC. So there's a lot of complexity in trying to navigate this in 160 different countries. But I do believe <laughs> that you know what you're describing in India, you know, to me makes a lot of logical sense. You should not have to necessarily even carry your phone, right? No, why should, why should you? It doesn't make any sense, really. When you go back to first principles, it's irrelevant, right? My fingerprint's a better identity than my phone is. Exactly. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? 
It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Talking about NFTs, the uh, other four corners to take is, we talked a bit about ticketing, other things. Where else do you think NFT is going to go? What other big unlocks for whether it's the masses or for industry at scale, do you think NFTs are going to open up here? Because I think it's a lot bigger than, you know, monkey JPEGs, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think intellectual property in general, that's, I think the Hollywood area is interesting because it creates awareness, right? And so that's one of the areas that we focus, right? If we're trying to drive a lot of impact for cultural awareness around this space, it makes sense to focus on those forms of IP and bringing them into Web3. But I think really meaningful applications that really excite me are really around health records, medical data. I mean, if you ask someone to pull out their medical data, good luck, <laughs> you know, being able to parse through your entire history, which is arguably absolutely crazy, your life. Like this is determining your longevity, all of this information, and it's very hard for us to find it. And so I think blockchain can play a major role in that. I hadn't thought about that. That's so obvious. I think it'll be it'll be it'll be massive, right? Your health records will be put on chain and hopefully you'll be able to permission who has access to them, right? You're in control and you're able to permission who has access to them. You can remove access when when you find that appropriate. I think that's ultimately the paradigm that we that we want to go to. And that should have a huge meaningful impact. To me, arguably it's, it's like the most important thing in your life. It's crazy to me also, I just think about this outside of the blockchain world, like all the things that you face in the environment, you know, the the sunlight that you that you have, the food that you consume, all, all this health. I, I feel like we, we know very little about our own our own bodies. And having that data could essentially hopefully get us to a point where we actually are able to solve and provide medicine faster, hopefully longer, healthier lives as a result of that data becoming more widely accessible. And right now it's a disastrous state for the state of where we are in terms of technology. Yeah, I think it changes the scientific process as well, because right now it's very specific. Well, if you can use AI at scale with vast data things, you can actually get down to probabilities much faster in things. Exactly. We're, we're not leveraging the best data set possible, right? Because it's, it's so hard to be able to pull all this big data together. And, you know, and also in real time, like there's so many things that are happening in real time that we're not able to learn about our bodies, like in, in every, every single piece of food that we consume. What's weird is we don't do this enough, but this is how we discovered cholera. So cholera in London was found because they thought it was airborne. They didn't know what the hell it was, why was it killing people, all of this stuff. And some guy decides to just map out all of the cholera outbreaks, realize that they were in clusters, then tried to figure out what the clusters were and figured out it was water. And that's how they, they solved the problem pretty quick by figuring it out in a different way than going through every microbe and going through trying to figure out what's going on in somebody's bodies. He just applied a macro concept to it and said, well, how do we solve it? That's what we can do at scale once we've got all of this stuff in a good order, right? Yeah, that's a good way to think about the model for the future. There's a lot that's coming, right? And here we are in crypto winter, which we've all been through boringly several times before. What gets us to the other side of this? How do, we, how do we get through outside of the macro? You know, the macro's got to change. But how do we get people reinvigorated? Your bet from what I'm taking is NFT is the reinvigoration because it feels more real to ordinary people. I think the really big thing that we're going to see is a shift towards why is technology actually important? How is it going to have a meaningful impact on my everyday life? 
And I talked about that before in terms of why is Web3 important? It's this idea that I control and I own my identity, my data, my property, and my digital currency. And so really the only way that we're going to see this stuff flourish is we have to focus on the infrastructure. If we do not get the infrastructure right, we're not able to scale these blockchains. We're not able to make it easy for brands or anyone that is working on the new applications around this technology. We don't make it easy for them to access it. I think we're, we're going to be held back. And so as a company, that's where we're super focused is, is really around the infrastructure. Do we scale this with new layer ones, existing layer ones, layer twos? It's going to go exponential, the need for blockchain space and for speed and for everything. How do we do that? I think a lot about this in terms of the concept of Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin's blockchain today is obviously not the most efficient. It's not the most performant blockchain relative to other blockchains. You know, I think you're going to see the actual assets be able to live in this kind of cross blockchain environment. Like I do think Bitcoin can live on Ethereum, it can live on Solana, it can live on other blockchains. And so I think it really gets borne out by how these blockchains are actually solving real problems and the use cases. I think for right now, you know, what's really interesting for me is we still haven't really necessarily solved with crypto's cross-border money movement. I think that will be one of the really big tests of what blockchain can ultimately perform that well at scale. Ultimately, transaction costs should be as close as possible to zero. You should be able to move money from the United States to Singapore in seconds to anyone that has an internet connection and can spin up a wallet. That should be absolutely seamless. And, you know, we're going to need to be able to do that at not the scale of hundreds of thousands or millions of people, but ultimately billions of people. I think we're the state of where we are in terms of the current blockchains, the smartest people in the world are working on scaling them. That's kind of where we are, but it's going to be borne out by the applications requiring this level of scale. Ivan, listen, fantastic conversation, super interesting. And uh, look, excited to see where the next few years go, right? I think it'll be a very different world again than we are in today. We got lots of work to do. Thanks for having me, Raul. Yeah, not at all. Great to see you. What I didn't really understand before speaking to Ivan is how massive his vision is how he sees the place and how he's playing the forward game here. It's not just about wallets, it's something much bigger. Although I already knew how big NFTs were, it just, the more I speak to people who are deeply involved in the space, not as collectors, but in the infrastructure and the thinking big about it, you realize exactly how massive this is gonna be. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.